Welcome to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 uh, with Ahmed and Summer. Summer is traveling. It's me in the studio. The show is live. Of course, today we'll be continuing our conversation on what's happening in Palestine and uh, Gaza and tr- providing some historical context of um, how we got here. And, um, yeah, so um, this is True Talk on WMNF. Uh, we'll be right back after this short break. على أرض تلاقيني أنا لهلي أنا فديهم أنا دم فلسطيني 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 أنا دم فلسطيني سمعونا زاد حلوة True Talk on WMNF 80.5 with Ahmed and Samar. Samar is traveling, it's just me here. And that was a song by Mohammed Asaf, a, actually a Palestinian from Gaza, who won a contest called Arab Idol. 
became famous uh, after that. Uh, he originally has, I don't think he lives there anymore. And that song that made him famous is uh, Demi Filistini. My blood is Palestinian. And Palestine is on everyone's mind. It's on everybody's um, television sets. It's on everyone's feed, especially what's happening in Gaza right now. Gaza, as it's called in English. Gaza, by the way, is a strip of land. It's only 25 miles long, five miles wide. It's basically the side of Saint, size of St. Petersburg, Florida. It's half the size of Pinellas County, size of St. Petersburg, Florida, but has something like 10 times the population. Um, over 2.3 million people, more than half of them are children. And Gaza in the spotlight right now, as you know, of course, because they're under extreme bombardment by the fourth most powerful army in the world with the most sophisticated weapons. It's, uh, I mean, if you're talking about biblical uh, stories or narratives, it's the story of David against Goliath, except in this situation... Uh, David being, you know, the uh, people of Gaza against Goliath. I mean, the roles are reversed. I don't know if this is some sort of, I don't, um, yeah. Anyway, we will not get too much in the theology. However, um, Gaza has been, you know, described by many people, um, including uh, President Carter has an open-air prison, the largest open-air prison. It's basically a 25-mile area. is surrounded by walls so high and it's sophisticated fences like a prison walls. And those 2.3 million people have been trapped inside since 2006 or 2007, 16, 17 years that they've been um, basically in prison. Other people call it a concentration camp. Um, people are able to move around within Gaza, that five mile by 25 mile area. However, they cannot leave. No one can leave except under rare, rare circumstances, especially now. No one can leave and no one can get in except under rare circumstances. Uh, but since October 7th, absolutely no one can leave and no one can enter. Not only that, uh, water, fuel. We're talking about water. The source of life, water has been cut off. Some people that have been interviewed recently have said they haven't drank water in like two or three days. They ran out of water. Who turned off the water? Their occupiers, the Israeli government. I've seen some videos actually where the Israeli government or soldiers were pouring concrete in the water source that's going to Gaza, that's going to Gaza. After a lot of pressure and even President Biden going there to... Um, to stand with Israel in those images, um, in his trip to his one-day trip to Israel, uh, an attempt to try to rally support behind Israel, he uh, asked the Israelis to turn on some water for the Palestinians in Gaza, and they said they'll tr open one pipe. However, because they've also turned off the electricity, uh, the water is still not running because you need pumps to pump that water. So Gaza is still without water, without electricity. And without food, even the food cannot get in. There are hundreds of trucks on the uh, Egypt side because Gaza, Gaza has two, uh, you know, borders, one with Israel and one with Egypt. And on the Egypt side, the Rafah border, there are hundreds, if not thousands of trucks waiting to enter that, uh, you know, carrying uh, medicine 
and humanitarian aid and food and supplies. They've been denied entrance. They're not allowed to go in because the border remains shut. And to make things more complicated, the Israeli armed forces, defense forces, the, the Palestinians call them the Israeli occupation forces, have bombed the Gaza side of that border, meaning bombing the roads. So even if the trucks make it through the border, they cannot actually drive because now there's no road. They just get stuck in the sand. So that's the situation. I wanted to, you know... When we do these shows, especially in this time, you know, sometimes some people, a lot of people appreciate, we get a lot of positive feedback, but some people, you know, send messages angry that we're not showing both sides, we're not talking about both sides. But guess what? If you want to hear the other side, if you want to hear the Israeli narrative, basically turn on any media outlet in the United States, in the West, turn on the BBC, turn on NBC, Fox, um, CNN, everything, even MSNBC that's supposed to be leftist. They had three Muslim anchors. They basically sidelined them in the meantime saying, hey, guys, sit this one out, sit on the bench. You're not going to be able to participate in this because guess what? Uh, you're a Muslim. So people are saying, shame on you. This is actually the time that you want to have diverse voices. You want to hear both sides. You want to hear, but there's only one narrative that's being pushed. And if you dare mention anything else, then, you know, you're under a lot of um, attacks. Um, but so if you want to hear the other side, you can turn to any other station that's everywhere uh, or any politician and hear the genocidal rhetoric that's coming out of their mouths. Um, is it mouth or mouths? It's like, is yeah, it's, there's no S on the end, but it's just a collective that's being amplified. Um, however, uh, on today, I wanted to actually just provide some context to what's happening. Um, so I had a couple of options. One, a historical context of you know, how did Palestine, this historical Arab nation, um, that, in fact, it was 100% Arab. Yeah, there were Christians, there were Jews, but guess what? There are Christian Arabs and there are, Christ there are uh, Jewish Arabs. And they lived in that area and they coexisted uh, just fine. However, these, uh, you know, 100 years ago or more, uh, these European uh, settlers started coming in. Uh, some of them happen to also be Jewish, but they're not the indigenous native people to the land. So how did Palestine become colonized? How did Gaza become the big concentration camp it is? Most of these people in Gaza are actually refugees that were pushed out of their homes, uh, which is now inside Israel. They didn't, they're not from Gaza. Very few families or tribes are actually from that small strip. These people that were crammed in there and they couldn't go any further because any further is the Mediterranean Sea or the desert. So that was like the last place and they've been crammed in there, um, 2.3 million of them now, and they just continue to um, suffer. The children now that are there are actually grandchildren of the people that were kicked out of their homes way back in 1948 when Israel was established. But so the other one option was to provide the historical context of how Palestine became colonized. But I think I'm going to share that next week. This week, I'm going to actually share a, a rare interview that took place. It actually took it. It happened way before the current uh, violence that's taking place in the current um, 
bombing campaigns against Gaza. But it's an interview, a rare interview with an Israeli army soldier, an Israeli army vet, who gave this interview to a journalist named Abby Martin. And um, in this, it says it's a rare, candid conversation. Abby Martin interviews a former Israeli army combat soldier who served as an occupier in Palestine's Hebron City, which is actually in the West Bank. But you can basically apply the same system um, everywhere else throughout uh, the occupied territories. His name is Iran Ifrati, spent years as a sergeant and combat soldier in the Israeli military, but has since become an outspoken critic of the occupation of Palestine and Israeli apartheid. So um, he gives this exclusive interview or this explosive testimony. And this took a few years back, but it's still very relevant today. I want to play it and then we're going to come back, maybe take some of your phone calls. Or you can email me your reaction to this right now or as you're listening to djwmnf.org. And um, we may read your comment on the air um, if I like it. No, actually, even if I don't like it, we read those too. But um, our phone number is 813-239-9663. You could also leave a comment or, you know, you may be holding for a while while we're playing this, but we may eventually get to your calls, um, your reaction to what this um, former Israeli army vet or former Israeli army soldier said, Israeli army vet. I guess you're always an Israeli army vet if you served in the Israeli army. Here it is, uh, the interview. a very outspoken critic of both the occupation and continued takeover of Palestine. What made you go through such a profound transformation? Well, uh, it, it didn't something that happened immediately. Obviously, growing up in Israel, you know, you ask me what was my role in the military. I'm not sure that my role started with my enlisted. I think my role started when I was about five and I realized that my father is putting uniform and going out to Lebanon uh, as a reserve soldier. That's the first time I felt that I'm a part of the military. Uh, the next time was in, uh, you know, kindergarten, when soldiers came in to tell us about uh, the independent war, uh, just after the Holocaust Day Memorial. Um, the next time will be when I was 16, and uh, I will get my first draft letter. And in this draft letter, it will be written that I am a property of the military. This is something that every kid in Israel goes through. When you're getting into the military system in the end, you're already so much embedded inside the military. The military is a part of your identity. It's as much you as you're Israeli or Jewish, for that matter, in Israel. And going into the military, I was expecting to be a manifestation of me just in uniform, uh, protecting my country, protecting my family. I grew up on hearing the stories from Auschwitz of my grandma, so my uh, mother's side, my grandma and grandpa was the only survivors from their family, from the Holocaust. Uh, all of my grandma's family were killed in Auschwitz. The stories from my grandpa that was also the only survivor from his family from the Holocaust. And from the other side, my grandpa and grandma from my father's side grew up and hearing this, their stories about Jerusalem and what it is to grow up without freedom under the British mandate. For me, being in the military is to protect them and to make sure that our life will go on as in freedom and, you know, in good uh, will. Um, I went through seven months of boot camp, and in the end of the seven months, I found myself in Hebron, uh, this, the only city that have a settlement in the middle 
of the city. So getting into the Chavon, uh, one of the first things that I had to do was protect a Jewish holiday. And my job is to put on curfew 180,000 Palestinians. So settlers from throughout the West Bank and Israel, Jewish settlers could come into Chavon and celebrate. So there's thousands and thousands of uh, Israelis and Jewish settlers from across the West Bank coming to celebrate. And the only way to keep them protected is to make sure that not, no Palestinian is living in his home. So literally one of my first tasks was to roam the streets and make sure Palestinians understand they're going into their home and they cannot leave until a second notice, until the next time we're coming in. And the first time was like a movie. You know, we, we birthed in into the city with our guns in our hands and our uniform and vest with grenades and uh, six packs of ammunition. And we just scream in curfew. And you see the chaos. You see the people just running from place to place, closing down their shops, running home. Because wherever you are when the curfew starts, this is where you're stuck. And you cannot go anywhere else. So you better be at home when we're starting to come the curfew. Now, the official orders uh, to anyone who breaks curfew is shoot to kill. I never did that. I never met anyone who shoot to kill uh, in this process of a curfew. But that was the orders and they knew it pretty well. They knew what they need to do. Uh, and this feeling of power uh, at once came as a big confusion to me. I think I wasn't clear um, if I'm enjoying the power of controlling all of these people or if I don't understand why kids look at me frightened. Why are they running away when I'm walking into the street? Before my service, I work as an educator. I love kids. So I think I was very confused on why a, a kid will find me uh, scary. You know, I, I realize now in, perspe in perspective, it got to do something with the fact that I have my boots on, my uniform, my helmet, uh, my six packs of ammunition, my two hand grenades, my M16 <laughs> in my hand. But I didn't realize it right. at the time. Right. And, I, and I really couldn't understand that. Um, and I think in a very rapid paced, I realized that my job is actually to maintain an apartheid system. Very, uh, very early on, I understood that the rights that the Jewish settlers have are not the rights that the Palestinians have. I understood that I cannot touch a Jewish settler if he is attacking a Palestinian. The best I can do is call a local police department to come handle it, like I would do at home in Jerusalem. So these Jewish settlers that live in Hebron are living under the same rights that I live in, in Jerusalem, but the Palestinian next to them, next house over, next building over, sometimes next apartment over, lives under my rule, my military rule. And I can do whatever I want with him. I can take his home as a temporary base for a few hours to a few days to a few weeks. I can decide that I'm arresting the people of the house and tying them up to defense of my base. Um, if we will get an order to demolish their home or just lock their front door and don't let them out into the street their house is on, a street that only Jewish settlers can walk on and Palestinians cannot. So they have to walk through windows to yards into the other side, into the Kasbah of Hebron. I think realizing all of that in a very, very early stage in my service helped me understood that someone was lying to me along the way. I didn't feel like I'm protecting anyone. I didn't feel like I'm helping anyone feeling more safe. I feel like I'm terrorizing people. I feel like for the first time in my life, the boundaries between good and bad that I learned as a kid, 
and obviously I learned that I'm on the good side, I was broken. I felt like I am the terrorist. And my job was literally to scare people so they cannot think about acting against the Israeli settlers or the Israeli military. That was actually our defined mission, to make sure that to instill fear in the hearts of Palestinians in Hebron. And that's exactly what we did. I think Hebron is a really um, intense example of, of apartheid, obviously. Like you just said, the settlements in the middle of the city, it's extremely visible. You have the cage streets, the ghost town, it's, it's horrifying. Why did you speak up and why did you do what you did knowing that you would suffer such repercussions and potentially be banned from returning back to your country? Um, well, growing up in Israel, like I said, I believe that I was the good guy. I mean, the story that all of us are being told all around the world is that the, the very clear difference between good and bad people are there. You learn about the Holocaust growing up. I saw my grandma screaming in the middle of the nights, memories from Auschwitz in our mind, memories to our family. Um, I knew that I am going to be a good human being. You know, in the age of uh, 15, 16, I began being almost obsessed with trying to understand the Nazi side in the Holocaust. Uh, not only to hear the stories of the victims, of the Jewish victims and any other victims from the Holocaust, but to try to understand how can a, a Nazi soldiers get up in the morning, give his kids a kiss, his wife a hug, and go out to the camps and do his job. I just couldn't understand that. And when I got into the occupied territories, uh, for the first time I understood how can there be a contradicting inside yourself. As a human being, you could do your job and be a one person at home, be a loving, caring uh, you know, boyfriend or a son or a brother. And at the same time, hold people under a regime so oppressed that people are dying not from only your bullets, but the amount of calories uh, being entered into their territory, like in Gaza, from depression or sickness. Uh, this realization during my time as a soldier uh, of me on the right side of history gave me this urge that something have to be done, something have to be spoken. Understanding that nothing is really changing from inside, that you have to step outside and start talking with the world about what's going on. Uh, and that's the only way you can live in a place, not only for Palestinians, but for me as well. You know, I don't wanna live in an ethnocracy. I don't wanna live in an only Jewish state that values uh, a privileged Jewish life on every other life. This urges me to understand that I want my kids to grow up in a place when they don't have to oppress anyone, they don't have to be soldiers. Uh, I guess that's what pushed me to do what I'm doing. Your humanity. <laughs> Let's talk about your time um, after getting out of the military and then you went through a series uh, through the West Bank, interviewing soldiers, getting their testimony. To Welcome to True Talk. Uh, this is True Talk on WMNF 80.5. You're listening to an interview with a, uh, a former Israeli soldier or Israeli army vet, um, Iran Ifrati. He's speaking with Abby Martin. Uh, we're going to take your phone calls afterwards about the situation in Gaza. You can call us at 813-239-9663, 813-239-9663, or you could email us at dj 
at WMNF.org. We want to talk about the bombing of uh, Al-Ahli Hospital, the uh, only Christian hospital in Gaza, and uh, Biden's trip to Israel and more. So continue listening. This is WMNF. A true talk on WMNF. The soldier who just got convicted of manslaughter, he executed an unarmed Palestinian man laying in the street, of course, in Hebron on camera. Uh, Israel, of course, is touting this as accountability, right? Justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your reaction to the verdict and, yeah, just your ca- the case in general? Well, I think the uh, Lior Azaria case had to be understood by a few contexts. Mm-hmm. The first one is the context of uh, Israeli military practice of ex- executions and targeted killing and also confirming a kill, what the Lior Azaria did on the Palestinian in Hebron, uh, are all practices that are alive in the military system, in the even police system or Mossad. It's illegal to continue doing execution. It's the middle of the previous decade in the 2000s. But then something very interesting started. Um, I am in my previous role as a researcher into the Israel military. I was taking testimonies from many soldiers. Uh, and one of the soldiers I'm reaching to is a soldier from a semi-elite unit called in Hebrew Duvdevan, a cherry in English. And he's telling me a story about how uh, he's serving after this role from the, after this new rule from the Supreme Court has been mandate and they cannot do targeting killing anymore. And how their officer is gathering the unit together and telling them, we're going to go out tonight to capture this person is highly dangerous. What we're going to do is we're going to come in five or six people's unit into their home in the middle of the night, break in quietly, go up to his bedroom, go into his bed and put a gun into his head. Now, if he just wake up and surrender, we're taking him into the base. But if he scream, you shoot him in the head. If he lifts his blanket, you shoot him in the head. If he lifts his hands or legs or trying to uh, do any movement, you shoot him in the head. Now, because we understand as rational human beings that no human being can wake up in the middle of the night with a gun into his head and not scream or move, we understand these orders as an execution orders that bypass the Supreme Court order. Uh, and instead of saying we're going to execute this person, they're saying we're going to arrest this person. But if we feel there's some kind of danger, maybe you have a gun in his bed, maybe he will scream for help, we execute him. So execution is something that is very much alive. I continue to interview dozens of this cherry unit that tells the same story about different cases, but the same exact practice in the occupied territories. They knew that this is what they're supposed to do. They knew that they were going into homes in the middle of the night to execute people. In October 2015, the latest intifada is starting, and even the official rules of not executing human beings are going off the window. From the prime minister, into ministers, into media people, everybody is talking about it from left to right, about you shoot to kill. If you see a girl with scissors next to you, you shoot to kill. Executions are very much alive in the Israeli uh, uh, military, the Israeli police, the Israeli discourse. People are calling for executions. People are calling for not only executions on, you know, what they call terrorists or resistant uh, uh, people, Palestinians that are running at you, but they're calling for revenge. Um, and when the Lior Azaria doing what he does, he's doing it after he heard it 
this specific order of executions every, what they call a terrorist, from every section of the Israeli society. We wouldn't be talking about El Azaria if it, the execution wasn't on a film, let's be honest. I mean, like you said, this is, this is commonplace, this is systematic, it's institutionalized. However, I, I, I do want to talk about how even before he was charged with manslaughter, it was a slap on the wrist at the beginning. I don't know if there was just international pressure that, that mounted at a certain point where they felt like they had to take the investigation forward. But even then, it was a very stark contrast between how right-wing Israelis reacted mm -hmm. to just a house arrest verdict. Um, then let's say people hear when a police officer shoots and executes an unarmed black man, and, and usually you have protests in the street against the police trying to get accountability there in Israel it seemed like there was mass rallies in support of El Rosaria. You know of course it's not surprising Israel is selling this idea of the soldiers are more important than anything the soldiers are more important than the life of Palestinians not only the life of soldiers the soldiers identity uh, you know security feelings are more important than a Palestinian life. The easiness, uh, the comfortable of people going out to the street and defending every case of manslaughtering that was captured on tape, that is clear that his life is not in danger, you know, they contradict everything that we are being told. And yet Israelis are saying in a very clear voice, not only that we don't believe in that. Not only that we will oppress Palestinian and will act as much as, you know, do whatever we want, but in a very specific way saying, don't uh, confuse us with idea of moral or right or wrong. Whatever soldiers do in the occupied territories are right. Whatever we're doing is the correct thing. I wanted you to talk specifically about the culture within the Israeli military that fosters anti-Arab sentiment and racism, essentially. Yes, I think the system, you know, is not only inside the military. It's, it's like, like I said before, that's actually what being an Israeli means. Being an Israeli, growing up in the Israeli educational departments, you understand that all the Arabs hates you that they're actually in a way the continuation of uh, the biblical Amalek or, uh, or Hitler, or, you know, that everybody there want to throw you into the sea. This is what you're growing up with and you really believe in that. I mean, going into the military, you're already going so full of hate and fear at the same time that you don't need much to be uh, very aggressive, violent, and, and racist toward Palestinians. They see the Palestinian women and the Palestinian men as subhuman. Uh, the occupied territories are like an ex-territory when those human beings are not considered to be human beings. This is a, a process that you start in a very early age, being enforced inside your boot camp, and later on when you're going into your service, when you do not see human beings in front of you. Do not believe their uh, sorrow, do not believe their smiles, do not believe their feelings. They are subhuman. But they look just like you. I mean, there's so many Arab Jews. It's incredible. Yeah. Like yourself. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that the, the Arab Jews in Israel are probably the most tragic story in the entire story of Zionism after the Palestinians. Uh, you know, and it's not being talked enough, obviously, inside the Israeli society or in the world. The Mizrahi Jew, the Arab Jews that came uh, around the years of 50 and onward into Israel 
Uh, some came by choice, came by, some came by force, but they didn't came to a country that was theirs. Came only about two years after Israel was already gave out much, most of the land into the European people. And they understood that they cannot hold the territory alone. They need more people on the ground to fight off Palestinians or Palestinian refugees if they will come back. And then they went off and brought most of the Arab Jews and put them in the most terrible places in Israel, on the borders, on the borders with Egypt or Jordan or uh, Lebanon and Syria. We put them at buffer zones to protect us from Palestinians. Some of them came in the Sivans. Uh, the Zionist organization sends delegations into these Arab countries. Uh, and called the Jews there to come into Israel, the Jewish homeland. Many of them didn't want to. Many of them, like in Iraq or Egypt, had a good life or in Morocco and wanted to stay. They didn't know what will be the destiny of this new country that I understood that there's very much likely that a lot of wars will go on there. They felt protected in those countries and they said no. And the Zionist organization sent another delegations into some of these countries of people disguised as Arabs from those countries to terrorize those people, to try to force them to come into Israel. They were born synagogues. We have testimonies today that talks about how they ran after people in the street and beat them down as so-called Arabs from Morocco, from uh, Egypt or Iraq trying to scare them. And immediately after that, more people from the Zionist movement would come and say, you see, the only safe place you have is Israel. You have to come now. And after they came, they were being sent into the most uh, uh, disgusting forms of uh, settlement for the newcomers from those Arab countries, being sprayed from DDT uh, with, uh, with uh, gas, trying to clean them up before they joining into the uh, Ashkenazi, the European kids, to play with them. They were separated and segregated for years that was not their country and it's still not their country. And what they had to do to start to assimilate themselves inside this new country was to make sure that everybody understood that they're actually not Arabs. They look like Arabs, they talk Arabic, but they're not Arabs, they're Jewish. Because you can be an American Jew and you can be a European Jew, but you cannot be an Arab Jew in Israel. And they erase their identity and they starting to form what we know today as the most extreme right in Israel. They are the extreme right because they have to solidify themselves as the most loyal citizens of the states. You hear this as a cycle of violence though. And every time I bring up, you know, especially being on the ground in the West Bank, visiting the Dewapsha family mm -hmm. or who's left of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whenever you bring up these, these horrifying stories and accounts of terror on behalf of the Israeli settlers, a lot of people just say, what about the stabbing attacks? What about, you know, what about the terrorist attacks on behalf of Palestinians? And it's painted as an as a equal fight, as a cycle of violence. And then you have um, the, the truck attack that just happened in Jerusalem. As a former soldier, how do you view these attacks? How do you view the stabbings, especially when they are directed at soldiers? Well, as an ex-soldier, uh, I learned very personally that if you will not respect existence, you can expect resistance. And this is how people resist. Uh, Israel as a state like to use the, the idea that Palestinians only understand force or power. But the truth of the matter is that Israelis only understand power and force. Every other attempt from Palestinians to try to negotiate this situation in a diplomatic way 
was uh, countered by more attacks, more oppression, uh, and more occupation, more stealing of the land, more destroying of homes, more settlements being built. We decided to call uh, we're going into the UN a diplomatic terrorism, and to go into the ICC, uh, you know, international terrorism. We basically describe every form of resistance as terrorism, because the sole idea of the occupation is not to be safe. The sole idea is to create an ethnically cleansed uh, piece of land only for Jewish people with Palestinian workers. Uh, of course, some Palestinians can stay and do stuff for us, but this is our land. What people maybe don't understand is that Israel is creating the conditions in to uh, the situation of constantly having to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. We're creating this situation by oppressive, oppressing millions of people until they do a, a, a phase where they have no other choice by resist. So many of these people lost a family member, uh, had been to prison or lost someone in prison and understood that nothing can be changed because the truth is that Israel do not hear the diplomacy. Israel do not hear the calls of Palestinians for equality. What we are seeing in Palestine is what a lot of people like to describe as the most uh, complicated political situation of our time. It's probably the most simple uh, situation, political situation of our time. It's a situation about equality. It's amazing that you say that, Iran, because this is painted as the most complex, the most hard to solve. Uh, it, they've been fighting over there for thousands of years. You know, you hear these, mm -hmm. these things, but really, it really does come down to basic equality and humanity. Mm -hmm. um, do, would you say that you support the right of Palestinians to fight their occupiers? Absolutely. I support the right of every human being uh, under an oppressive military rule to resist this military rule by any means uh, possible. Uh, I do not believe that Israel have a right to occupy millions of human beings without every decent uh, human, simple, basic human rights uh, for their name. And I do not believe that Israel would change uh, on its own. At no point in history there was uh, a state or a power that had the power to control over other human beings and benefit from it and just decided to let go of this power by its own. Mm -hmm. It was always forced on them by the resistance of the people underneath them or the intervention of other forces around the world. And unfortunately, uh, I, as I do support the Palestinian right to resist in any way, I do not believe that their resistance is enough. I do believe that the rest of the world have to interfere in what's going on in Palestine. There's nothing else that we can do except for giving all the Palestinians equal rights and starting a new state, a new uh, equality system for all human beings on the ground. Welcome back to True Talk on WMNF 88.5. That was an interview by Abby Martin for uh, her show called Empire Files. It's actually from a few years ago with Israeli Army vet Iran um, Ifrati, who's now actually, of course, left Israel because of all the uh, criticism and danger to his life and now is serving, I believe, working with uh, Jewish Voices for Peace, for which... By the way, that organization organized one of the largest actions yesterday or in the past couple of days in Washington, D.C. 
Um, yesterday, they um, did a sit-in at the ca- on Capitol Hill in the rotunda there, and they had the message, you know, ceasefire now. And um, I think another message that I read said, uh, mourn for the dead and fight like hell for the living, which is so true. Uh, we mourn for the dead. The dead that's um, uh, in Israel, as well as the dead in Palestine. I mean, mourn for the for the innocent civilians. However, there are people being bombed today, people being bombarded today. Who's going to stop that? And others, I've seen other reports and other uh, folks uh, at the action by Jewish Voices for Peace, many of whom are actually, they have ancestors that survived the Holocaust and said things like, you know, don't use, um, you know, don't use the violence against innocent people to actually go and kill other innocent people. You know, when you're talking about, you know, the latest numbers um, as of today, and of course this number continues to rise, at least 33,785 Palestinians have been killed. Um, A third of those are children. 12,493 wounded. A million people have been displaced in one week. A million people. It's like an exodus of, you know, biblical proportions. A million people, it's like another Nakba. Uh, you know, people that have had to, they're internally displaced, by the way. It's not like they can leave the Gaza Strip. They're just going from their homes. They left their homes from the North Gaza, and now they're crammed in South Gaza. If the place wasn't already the most densely populated place on Earth, it's now even more populated because um, they're pushing them further, further, you know, into the South, and nowhere is safe. Uh, hundreds, if not thousands of buildings, residential homes have been um, destroyed. Uh, something like 500,000 homes have been destroyed. And the most recent horrific attack on the hospital, Al-Ahli Hospital, which is actually a, um, a hospital, a Christian hospital, and people thought that, you know, the Israelis wouldn't dare bomb a, um, a hospital a Christian hospital that's governed by the Church of England, that that would be some sort of safe place, but it doesn't seem like any place is safe uh, there. So that was an interview. It's an interview way before uh, the most recent uh, atrocities that are taking place there um, with Iran Ifrati, and I guess he's now working with Jewish Voices for Peace, who are taking action in Washington, D.C. Jewish Americans are standing up and saying, you know, do not, you know, cease fire now not in our name, and never again does not mean just never again, just only for one group, never again for everyone, never again for all human beings. And this is what's missing in our uh, conversations and our in the narratives that we see, especially in the mass media and out of politicians and out of the governor of Florida and even out of Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden, that is just, it's so disturbing you know, last week he's repeating this lie, uh, or he was duped to repeat this lie, that somehow 40 babies, babies were beheaded. We have yet to see any proof that babies were beheaded. Of course, the loss of life or killing of any innocent civilian is an atrocity, and it's horrific. But you don't have to exaggerate and add more to it that babies were beheaded and... um 
it all stemmed from one individual and reported by one reporter, and then somehow it caught fire everywhere and went viral. And now, and you know, five, six, seven days later, news stations and outlets started walking their comments back and saying there's no, there's no evidence of it. And um, and uh, however, B- Benjamin Netanyahu was still doubling down, trying to claim that it still exists. He posted some image um, as proof, but people on the internet disputed it and said that this was AI generated. Um, it just. I feel for the civilians that are getting uh, bombarded, and it's just very sad uh, what's happening there. So uh, feel free to call in at 813-239-9663, 813-239-9663. What took place on October 7th and uh, civilians getting killed, of course, is is an atrocity. Uh, But that does not justify going and doing collective punishment and mass murder on a completely innocent population. And this is the problem. You have the president and the president of Israel himself said that there are no civilians in Gaza. He's on the record saying that. That, you know, and even Governor DeSantis to some degree said that somehow the people of Gaza shared the same views of Hamas and well, and he made the argument, well, they elected them. He said this on Face the Nation on Sunday, which, you know, he looked ridiculous, by the way, um, in front of the host, somehow saying that, you know, because he's making the point that they're relocating and saving uh, or rescuing uh, Jewish Floridians and bringing them back to the United States. And actually, I think um, a few a couple of plane loads of individuals were brought back to the uh, and landed at Tampa Airport, and he was uh, basically taking credit for that. But when asked, "What about the you know Americans that are trapped in Gaza?" and he didn't really seem to care. And he's basically saying, "Well, I'm on record saying none of those people from Gaza should be coming to Florida. No refugees from Gaza should be coming here." Uh, somehow, I, I thought this is this is the United States that you know, uh, equal, you know, you treat people equally. Uh, all people are equal under the law. It's not laws just for some people. It's not laws for white people and different laws for other people. I mean, obviously that's what's happening. According to the Israeli soldier, uh, Israeli vet, Israeli army vet, Iran Ifrati, they actually had, a, you know, a two... Uh, tier system, uh, one system, uh, one rule, one set of laws for the Jewish community, and different, completely different one for the Arabs and you know everyone else, and that's why they call it apartheid. But you've got the governor here trying to have some sort of, which is unconstitutional. You can't be just the governor for some people and not the others. <sighs> I don't, and and many people, many other people have said the same thing. Nothing. I mean, it doesn't justify. You can't collectively just cut off water. More than half of the population of Gaza, of Gaza, are children. Are you going to say that all these children are Hamas? All these children are terrorists, and they don't even deserve water. Uh, what? What? This is not, and you can't claim to be a democracy in doing these things. That, that's just abhorrent. 
Um, our phone number is 813-239-9663, and our email is dj at wmnf.org. I'm going to go with um, Sister Kelly. Sister Kelly in Tampa. She's first up. Let me see how. There we go. Rob Lowry for having you on the other night. That was so perfect timing. I applaud your intelligence. Can you tell me again what was perfect timing? Uh, being on Rob Lowry. Oh, oh, you're talking about my appearance on Rob Lowry on Friday? Yes, that was wonderful. Okay, yeah. Uh, just as context for folks, uh, I did a, I uh, appeared on a PBS show, the local PBS WEDU's show called Florida This Week, and Rob Lorai, who is the host of that show, yes. and they provide uh, the perspective from, uh, I guess, Arab perspective, and then also mm -hmm. from um, the pro-Israel perspective. So that's what you're referencing. Thank you for saying yes. that. Yes, and I wish that we could get copies of this ex-soldier. Um, this, this you can uh, find this uh, interview that we just that I just gave on YouTube. Um, you just search for Empire Files, uh, Israel Army Vet. Empire Files, Israeli Army Vet. It's on YouTube. Okay, I'll ask my children to check it out because... Um, we have a, a, a chronic belief of uh, fundamental Christians that I personally know people that make the trek to Israel to the so-called Holy Land. And some of them died over there because uh, Israel made this Holy Land trek like uh, a star to be approved by God, and they are not reporting that these many of these uh, fundamental Christians, even from my homeland back in South America, they make that trick because they feel that's a star in their Christian walk, and some of them don't, they die over there, and the, it, 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 many fundamental religions in this country poured billions of dollars to Israel, and the, 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 the fundamental Christians believe that sending money to Israel is like achieving a star in their, in their crown for Jesus. And all these lies is so, so propagated around the world through religion. And Brother Ahmed, I thank you for you and Summer's show because I have learned so much. Thank you, Sister thank Kelly. You. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take buddy. care. Uh, Josh in Clearwater. And by the way, um, before I go to Josh, our phone number is 813-239-9663. Um how do you feel what's happening uh, in Gaza and this bombardment? Are you in support? Are you against? You can also email us at dj at org. Josh, go ahead. Yeah. Um, first of all, I really like your show. I listen a couple times a month. Uh, I'm a Jewish American, and I really love your show. It's really good. Thank you so much. I, I, um, 
don't know if there's enough time to listen, but I would listen next week. I, as a Jew, I think most Jews want to live in peace with the Palestinians and send their school, kids to school together. I really believe that deep in my heart. My question is, uh, and I'd love to hear your perspective, um, is Hamas seems to be, yeah, they were elected into power, and yeah, the Hamas people are very evil, and, and I don't like anything about Hamas. And I do have a lot of sympathy for the Palestinian people. But my question is, uh, what can the Palestinian people do on their own to get rid of Hamas? Because... I feel like without that question being answered, it's really hard to ask Israel not to go in there. And um, I just... Yeah, I don't know if I have the exact answer, but I mean, if... if uh, I mean, look at it from the Palestinian perspective. If uh, Hamas... I can't. I, I can't yeah, I mean, okay. Imagine, basically, if... Let's say Hamas put down their weapons and they just gave up and said, hey, we give up. Or nonviolent, which, by the way, when they participated in elections in 2006, that was an avenue that the international community could have said, you know, go ahead and here's your opportunity to govern. But what happened after 2006 when they won the election, which Jimmy Carter was in Gaza at the time and said it's one of the most free elections that took place in the entire Middle East. It was a fair election. And the people want to change because they were fed up that the Palestinian PLO was not making uh, you know, advancements in their lives, and there was a lot of corruption or accusations of corruptions. Instead of uh, respecting the people's vote, uh, Israel and the United States and um, and even the PLO uh, took measures to try to overthrow Hamas. It turned into a civil war, and Hamas won that civil war and have been in power. And right after that, the blockade came into place to punish the people because Hamas is in power. That could have been an opportunity to try to shift him away from violence. However, that just made them, um, you know, more entrenched. But if they put down their weapons, what's to stop the, uh, the, the Israeli government from just going in and killing whoever they want? That's one. The other argument that I hear from Palestinians is that there is no Hamas in the West Bank. Hamas does not exist in the West Bank. They're not in power in the West Bank. And just this year alone, some over 235 people have been killed in the West Bank. And yeah, what's I, the excuse I, to do that in the West Bank? The West Bank is the other part of, of Palestine. I, I, I know what you're saying, and I do agree that there's a long history before, but I'm talking about today. I'm We're going to have to leave it for next week because the NPR is yeah, coming up I'll, now. I'll listen. Yeah, yeah. I'll listen. I, 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 I would like to hear more about Thank you, Josh. Today. Okay, because we got to go to the NPR News. Thank you so much. By the way, tomorrow, 10 a.m., I'm going to be doing a debate, I guess, on a show called Down and Dirty at this station on this dial, 10 a.m. tomorrow morning. Uh, the show is called Down and Dirty. We're going to be doing a debate about this topic. Um, I will be providing, I guess, my perspective. So tune in tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., here at WMNF 88.5 on the show called Down and Dirty. Have a great weekend. NPR News is next.